this is Doug Hadaway. Welcome to Achieve Great Things, where we talk about the power of strategy, science, and storytelling to help you achieve ambitious goals for people on the planet. Jessica Blank is on a mission to impact our world through the transformative power of story. She's an award-winning writer, director, actor, producer, coach, consultant, and teacher with an amazing track record of creating art that leads to impact. She and her husband, Eric Jensen, are collaborators in a form of art for impact called documentary theater. They created a play about people condemned to death row for crimes they didn't commit. That work of art helped change policy and save lives. She teaches about the brain science of storytelling, the structure of storytelling, and the power of storytelling to move us, change us, and make us see the world in new ways. In this episode of Achieve Great Things, we talk with Jessica Blank about ways you can use the power of storytelling to create impact. Jessica Blank, thank you so much for joining us on Achieve Great Things. Thanks for having me. Uh, Let's start with a story, uh, one of our favorite topics and the topic of today's conversation. Tell us about the origin of your play, The Exonerated. I can set the scene. It's the year 2000. You're newly arrived in New York City, studying acting, working as an activist, then something happened. (laughs) Yes. Well, so the first thing that happened is that I met my um, now writing partner and husband, Eric Jensen, um, and we were dating. And I, I mean, you know, a couple dates in. And I invited him to a conference on the death penalty at Columbia University, which I was going to because that's, you know, the kind that's of thing. That's what you do on a couple dates in. <laughs> yeah. And he likes to say that it was early enough in our relationship that he would still say yes to anything I asked him. <laughs> um, so he came with me and we were at a workshop. Um, he, I should say also he started as an actor. He is an actor working television and film actor and theater. Um, so that was his orientation at the time too, right? So we were both a couple of actors in New York, interested in writing, interested in storytelling, but really focused on being actors. We we went to a workshop at this conference on a group of cases called the Death Row 10, which are, uh, they're a group of guys in Chicago um, who had all been interrogated and tortured by a particular police commander named John Burge, who had been at that time found to have done that and fired. He was since prosecuted and later died. These guys were still sitting in prison, some of them with no other evidence against them besides these quote unquote confessions that had come out of that torture. And we heard a lecture on the cases and we saw some sort of 60 minutes style documentary footage. We got a lot of information for about an hour and it was all very disturbing and upsetting. And, you know, it's not like it didn't impact us, but it was really all at an intellectual level. Right. But then the organizers had set up a phone call from one of the guys in prison and they hooked the cell phone up to a speaker so that for a few minutes he was actually talking to us in the room. And he didn't say anything mind-blowing. He just told his story. But by the time the authorities got wise to what was happening and cut off that call, everyone in the room was in tears. And um, Eric and I, also in tears, sort of looked at each other. And he looked at me and was as moved as anybody in the room, but being sort of an outsider to the activist law nerd scene that we were in, he said to me, this is bullshit. 
Like these are not the people that need to be having the experience that we're having. Mm. Everybody who's here is already here because they care. And this is such a powerful thing, but we're in a room of defense attorneys and clergy and activists and whatever. And so we started writing notes literally to to each other in the back of the law classroom about how do you get around that problem? How do you get around the problem of preaching to the choir? And we were both interested in documentary theater. I um, was a huge, am still a huge fan of Anna DeVere Smith. Like as I was coming up, she was sort of the only person who I was like that, like what she's doing, the writing, the acting, the activism and engagement, like all at the same time. Okay. And, um, and Eric knew Moises Kaufman a little bit, who at that time was working on the Laramie Project. It hadn't come out yet. And so both of us were interested in the form of documentary theater. And we got the idea in that conversation to travel around the country, interview death row exonerees, so people who had been wrongly convicted, put on death row, and then later freed, and make a documentary play out of their words. Mm. That was the genesis of that idea, which wound up, you know, becoming having a long life off Broadway. It ran for two years. It was made into a movie with Susan Sarandon and Danny Glover and did a whole mm-hmm. thing and, and wound up having a lot of real world impact. But it came out of, I mean, I think it's really worth noting that like the genesis of that idea was actually our experience of the difference between learning something through an information mm. dump and learn yep. through a story. We are going to get into the brain science behind that, but let's, you've teased us with the impact. Tell us about the impact that the Exonerated had. So when we first started working on the Exonerated, we had never written a play before. Like we didn't know, we had never made a documentary. We had never done like a research intensive project outside of school. Like we didn't know how to do what we were about to embark on at all. So we called everybody we knew and we asked them for help. And um, the one of the main initial tasks was to get in touch with death row exonerees who might want to speak to us, right? So we had to find them. I mean, this was like before, I mean, I won't say before the internet, but it was like very early days of the internet. It was not so hard, not so easy to like find people and research things as it is. Now. Early 2000s. Yeah, we yeah. had to like, you know, it was the year 2000. So we had to like actually make contact with people who might know these people. Right. Right. Um, and so we reached out to the Innocence Project and to the Center on Wrongful Convictions. And we stumbled upon a model for our future work that actually wound up proving really effective, which is forming these informal partnerships with organizations that work directly with the impacted populations that we're talking with at the outset of the project, right? So the Center on Wrongful Convictions kind of vetted us. We were like a couple of art kids from New York City, like, (laughs) and they were like, yeah, yeah, okay, you want to talk to death row exonerees, fine. But but we had put together a board of advisors and, you know, we were doing our homework. Mm -hmm. And eventually they decided that we were okay. And they helped us connect with the people that they knew, the exonerees that they worked with, who really actively wanted to tell their stories, which is something that's really important to the work that Eric and I do. Mm-hmm. Um, we we don't ch- we're not like investigative journalists in the sense that like we don't chase people who don't want to talk to us. Like we are looking yeah. for enthusiastic consent, and because we're dealing with heavily traumatized populations, a lot of the time we're very sensitized to the fact that like we're looking for the folks that want to get their story out there, like as part of their own process, right? Mm -hmm. 
The Center on Wrongful Convictions helped us do that and put us in touch with the folks we wound up traveling to interview. But also at the same time, it started this informal partnership and conversation that was then active as the play wound up coming into being and having a life off Broadway. And, you know, we also forged a partnership with the Innocence Project. They got the theater for free for a night to do a benefit, right? We were just like always looking at like, you're on the ground doing the work around this subject. We're telling a story about this subject that's based on real stuff. How can we continue to contribute to each other? processes. Mm. Fast forward a couple of years, the play is running. It's a big off-Broadway hit. There's celebrities in it. It has a whole life. And at the same time in Chicago, Governor George Ryan, right before we actually got the idea for The Exonerated, had declared a moratorium on the death penalty in the state of Illinois back in 1999, 2000, because he was concerned about the rate of wrongful convictions. Right. And he had, in the meantime, he had, you know, appointed a bipartisan commission to look at the issue and like, look at like, what can we do to minimize the risks of this? They came back with 89 recommendations, only one of which was actually put into practice by the legislature, right? So he's facing a situation where both of the candidates running to replace him had said that they were going to lift the moratorium on executions in Illinois when they took office. And so he was in this situation where he was like, I know we have this huge institutional problem. We have death row full of people whose cases, whose innocence or guilt is unclear. So he announced publicly that he was considering commuting the sentences of everyone on Illinois death row before he left office. There was a huge public controversy. He decided to have hearings on all of the cases, but of of course, they're enormously complicated cases and the day-long hearing on each one only made everything less clear, right? He's being lobbied by all sides. The Center on Wrongful Convictions is at Northwestern, so they're in Chicago. They're involved in this conversation and they called us up and they said, if we can get the governor in a theater, can you bring the play from New York? So on a Monday, Monday night, we brought the cast from New York, plus a couple of special guests to Chicago to do a command performance for the governor and several members of the Illinois state legislature, 50 death row exonerees as part of his decision making process. Mm -hmm. And he stayed late into the night listening to all of the exonerees who were there after the play and asking questions that were brought up by the story. And he has since written in his book and said publicly that he didn't know what he was going to do up until that night and that that night was a turning point for him in his process of deciding to actually clear Illinois' death row before he left office, commute everyone's sentences to life in prison, right, so that at least they could go through the appeals process, which was also then a step in eventually abolishing the death penalty in the state of Illinois. Wow. And the story was the turning point, that experience, I guess, to use your word, experiencing. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, we would never take credit for his decision and he talked to so many people like who are much more boots on the ground in this kind of work through that whole process. But he has said the emotional experience that he had from hearing those stories in that form that night was, was a turning point for him in his process. So from that experience and perhaps others, because you've gone on to do a number of documentary plays and always with the focus on impact for listeners who are interested in leveraging the power of story, particularly, I guess, of art, you know, theater, 
uh, television, movies, et cetera. I'm hearing, for example, a guiding principle, get it in front of your decision maker, yeah. right? Um, lots of times there's disconnects, as we've discussed many times, between the creative community and the policymaking world, if you will. What are some thoughts, guiding principles from you for folks in terms of how you help translate art into impact? Absolutely. Well, so, I mean, you know, that experience was like, so the whole thing, the creation of, from the beginning of the creation of the play, we were like figuring it out as we went along and then suddenly found ourselves in this room with the governor. And essentially I was like, after that happened, I was like, okay, I need to figure out how that happened. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like what were the steps that had to fall into place to make that happen? Is it repeatable? And can I teach it to people? And, you know, I think one of the guiding principles that, again, we stumbled into accidentally is you work with, you find and work with organizations who are on the ground with impacted populations from the very beginning of the process, right? So we did that out of need. Like, how are we going to find these exonerees who knows them well at the Center on Wrongful Convictions would. But in fact, that partnership, especially because it was in place from before there even was a work of art, put us in communication with each other so that we weren't siloed, like, oh, artists over here and activists and Mm -hmm. organizers doing the work over here. And then we have to like figure out how we can talk to each other and like, what is the timing and all of that. We were already connected. So that at any point during the life of their work or the life of our play, there could be like, oh, there's an opportunity. Let's plug in. We need to do this over here. Can the play help? Right. Mm. Oh, the play is being done at the United Nations. Can you do anything? Do you want to do something with that? Right. So I think those kinds of partnerships and again, they don't have to be formalized or complicated or anything like that are really crucial. And then I think also being able to move quickly. Right. Mm. Being able to respond to circumstances on the ground. None of us knew that situation with the governor was going to arise in the way that it did before a few months in advance. Right. So there are Mm. things you can't plan for. So to be able organizationally to just like do a lift, let's get the film in front of people. Let's bring the cast to Chicago and do a reading, right? Like to be able to think creatively about how to leverage the work is really important. And then yes, absolutely getting it in front of decision makers. And those decision makers can be totally different depending on circumstances. Sometimes it is one executive who holds an enormous amount of power who's considering making a decision that could change hundreds of lives, right? Yeah, it really is authentic, intensive collaboration with the people whose stories are being told, with the organizations that work with them and their communities. Yeah. And, you know, as a, I, I'm an interdisciplinary artist and I sort of always has, mm-hmm. have been. So just by my nature, I tend yeah. to like ignore professional categories. <laughs> right? I'm interested in expertise and training, right? Of course, and experience, yeah. of course, but like, oh, you're an activist. Oh, I'm a documentarian. Oh, I'm a TV writer. Oh, I'm a director. Like those, my frame is that we can do lots of different things because I do lots of different things and that we can move between disciplines, right? And I think that is another really important guiding principle. It's like what I look for are shared aims, right? Are we trying to achieve the same thing? And then you bring people who are trying to achieve the same thing through different vocabularies, through different professional practices together in the same room. All of a sudden it can radically accelerate the work and get rid of a lot of the doubling that is often happening just 
by virtue of the fact that people aren't talking to each other across disciplines. So speaking about getting it in front of decision makers is actually a good segue into some of the brain science because studies of communication and persuasion have shown that everybody is more persuaded by stories than statistics and facts and figures, including subject matter experts and decision makers who see themselves as not persuaded by anecdote or story, but the scientific studies of that show, no, in fact, they are. Um, what's going on there? What's what's behind the power of a story? I mean, so many things, right? And mm. I, MRI technology is amazing because it now enables us to understand what's actually happening in people's brains while they're having all different kinds of experiences, right? So the things that artists, professional storytellers, dramatists have known for like millennia, right? Intuitive. Mm are now suddenly provable, right? Like, oh, there's a reason why this blockbuster did great and this one failed. Oh, there's a reason why we think of this work of dramatic literature as a classic, right? There are structures that our brains are wired to respond to in predictable ways. Like, there's a reason why what Aristotle talks about in the poetics and what Joseph Campbell talks about in the hero's journey actually match, Right. Because this is baked in. So when we hear information, right, the way I'm talking right now, it activates two areas of the brain, Broca's area and Wernicke's area, which are the areas of the brain that are essentially concerned with language comprehension and information processing. That's all that happens. Yeah. When we hear something in story form, and by that I mean a character goes on a journey overcoming obstacles towards a goal and transforms through that process, right? That's the mm -hmm. basic bones of what I mean by story. It does all kinds of other things in our brain. So the first thing it does is it activates the mirror neuron network, which is in the sensory cortex. And the mirror neuron network is like, it's the foundation of how babies learn, how we as human beings learn anything, right? Like if you've ever spent time around a baby and you make a face and they copy the face, right? Like that's the mirror neuron yep. network it work. So say I tell you a story about a guy who walks into a room where the walls are bright blue and bacon is sizzling on the stove and he smells it and hears a loud pop from the fat. It would, if I told you that in story form, it would activate your sensory cortex as if you were seeing the color blue smelling bacon fat and hearing that sound, right? Your sensory experience would not actually be able to like distinguish between hearing a story about somebody having that experience and it happening to you as far as your brain's concerned, which by the way, is why, you know, our high school creative writing teachers always said like, use the five senses, right? right. We yeah. know this intuitively, right? It's activating the mirror neurons in the sensory cortex. My mouth is watering as we speak. Right, totally. The second thing that happens in the brain when we hear a story is it activates a network of regions in our brain that are involved with what's called mentalization or theory of mind, which is the ability to imagine another person's interior psychological experience. Mm -hmm. So this to me is like miraculous because what it means is that story is a technology for triggering empathy, mm. right? That yeah. automatically, once we are identified with a protagonist, once we are on a journey with a character, we are imagining what it is like to be them 
Mm. Right. And we know this, right? If we go to the theater and we don't leave feeling like we walked in the main character's shoes, it was like a bad night at the theater. It was a boring play, right? right? Yeah. We know that part of the experience of a good story is feeling kind of like we were the protagonists or we were Mm. inside of their story. So to me, in terms of impact work, that tells me that like there is so much to be gained from looking at like, who are we asking our audiences to identify with? Who are the protagonists? Who are we asking people to go on the journey of and imagine the interior life of? That makes a big difference actually in terms of what kind of society we build. So we have sensory cortex, we have like covering the five senses and physical experience. Right. We have theory of mind and mentalization covering psychological experience. Mm -hmm. So story does this to our brains. It makes us feel like we are connected. And I believe that there is a reason why this is wired into us. Right. Mm -hmm. We spend a lot of time thinking about competition, right, as it relates to evolution and the survival of our species. But competition actually has to be balanced by connection, right? Or else we compete each other to death, right? As we (laughs) see actually happening. And I believe that this response to story is wired into us actually to remind us that we are connected to each other because Mm. that's equally important to our survival. Yeah, homo sapiens have thrived through cooperation, not just competition. And yes, part of our toolkit, that's really interesting. And speaking of sort of creating that experience I'm thinking probably gets into stories told well. So there's a technique part of this, which we'll get to in a minute. But let's hear about another project. Do you have a play and documentary film called Coal Country? Uh, I know our listeners would love to hear, you know, about what's next and what your vision is for that. Full disclosure for listeners, Jessica and I and our teams are collaborating on an impact campaign around this very fascinating topic, Coal Country. Yeah. So so since The Exonerated, Eric and I have continued to work in documentary theater. We also write for television. We make movies, uh, both documentary and scripted features. Um, and But with our documentary plays, which we've done several now, we're always looking for a very specific kind of entry point. I mentioned strategic protagonist choice, right? Mm. I mentioned like, who are we asking the audience to walk in the shoes of? Who are we asking them to identify with, right? And so when we're choosing a subject for a documentary play, we're not just looking for like what's compelling, what has high stakes, what we think is important. We're also looking for a place where there's a conversation nationally, maybe sometimes even internationally, that's stuck, right? That's stuck in a polarized deadlock, Mm. right? Where there's a binary and where there are people whose lived experiences, were we to identify with them, could lead us out of that deadlock and into a larger conversation, right? Mm. So with the exonerated, that's the death penalty and exonerees, right? Like we can get stuck forever in like, we need the death penalty, right? Because if you you kill somebody else, you forfeit your own right to life versus the state should never kill anybody under any circumstances ever and like just stay locked up. But if we look at like, okay, but there are people who are sentenced to death who are innocent, we can all agree on because the courts freed them 
let's start there. And like all of a sudden, a much larger and Mm. more complex conversation can happen among people who might have very different political opinions from each other. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. On a deeper human level. So coal country is another one of these stories. Right. So the binary at work in this around this story is a deadlock that was actually fostered by politicians and corporations between, you know, a a sort of binary opposition between coal miners and environmentalists, right? We're all familiar with this story, right? Right. Coal is bad. (laughs) It's killing the planet on one side. And like, we need jobs. And this is our way of life and livelihood. And like, Mm -hmm. you want to come in from some other place and take away my right to feel my feed my kids, I'm going to have a problem with you on the other side, right? So, And then in meanwhile, politicians and corporations are profiting off of this controversy. So in 2010, there was an explosion at a place called the Upper Big Branch Mine in West Virginia, and 29 coal miners were killed. There had been miners warning for, in fact, years that this mine was unsafe. There were multiple safety violations that were not addressed. I mean, coal mining is a very dangerous job. Coal dust is essentially gunpowder and you're dealing with heavy machinery. So the risks are very real and the safety laws are there for a very necessary reason. So there was a situation at this coal mine where there there had been unsafe practices and workers trying to be whistleblowers for a very long time until unfortunately one day the mine the mine blew up and took the lives of 29 men and blew up the heart of this incredible community in West Virginia. It was a national news story. Mm. Several of the miners were missing for several days. It had been on the front page of the New York Times. Eric and I actually followed it while it was happening. We were very compelled by the story as it was happening and we're watching closely. And then as happens in these stories, after a little while, the cameras left and they left the community behind. Yeah. The story stuck with us. We didn't know that much about it, We, but we knew that there was something there. At the time in 2010, we had just had a baby. So we were not prepared to go into an intensive research process for a new documentary play, but the idea didn't leave us alone. And we so once we were ready in 2015 2016 we reached out to the country musician steve earl who's genius he's got a bunch of grammys Mm. like extraordinarily extraordinary singer songwriter because we knew also that this story probably wanted to have music appalachia music Mm. very important that also the story wanted to be situated in a larger historical context which the music could help us do while still adhering to the documentary form and first person direct address in the playwriting and so steve and us got together and we went down to west virginia and we interviewed family members of the coal miners who were killed Mm. um, in the ubb disaster and some miners who were actually in the mine that day and survived and we made a play based on those interviews called coal country steve's album of the songs uh, from the play is called Ghosts of West Virginia. We opened it in March 2020 at the Public Theater. um, And then, of course, quickly had to shut down um, and brought it back this past year in early 2022 at the um, we recorded it for Audible. It's actually available on Audible during the pandemic and then Audible and and the public co-produced a reopening at the Cherry Lane Theater in 2022. Before we were shut down by COVID, we brought 
the families from West Virginia to see the play in New York City, which is another thing that's important to Eric and I is to actually bring the real people together with the work. We had had that experience before with the Exonerated. It's enormously powerful, but I don't think any of us were quite prepared for how powerful this particular encounter was because it was essentially also a cross-cultural encounter. Right. I mean, here we are in New York City, off Broadway, a bunch of like, you know, sort of coastal progressive art weirdos, to be perfectly frank, right, (laughs) about our various identities. And then literally coal miners and mining families from very, very rural West Virginia. I don't know if I vote the same way some of these folks vote. Right. I don't know if we talked about hot button issues and used terminology that's been overdetermined on Twitter that we would like think we agreed with each other about everything. But if we get what we discovered is that when we got underneath that to these larger questions about job safety, about the right to a safe workplace, about family, about corporate power and corporate greed, about unions, Mm. right? We actually agreed on everything and had this deep human encounter that repeated when we reopened the play in 2022. Audible allowed us to invite all 29 families, even the ones that weren't in the play. So we we had a a bunch more West Virginians come to New York. And then wonderfully, we got the funding at the end of that run to bring the play to the community where the explosion had occurred. So we did it for one night for free in an 1100 seat theater for an audience made up entirely of the community and families impacted by this explosion. And at that point, we had already started talking about making a documentary film because we had seen the this encounter between the families and the play and knew that there was something in there that opened up the possibility of a much larger conversation, right? Like climate, jobs, all of these issues that we think about issue as issues, right? <laughs> There was a human encounter that got to the heart of all of that stuff happening. So we brought a crew with us and we brought, we kept some of the actors for like a week after the show and they hung out with their real life counterparts and we filmed some of that and, and we, we started putting together the beginnings of this project. Um, which we knew was going to be about the UBB disaster. And we knew was going to somehow be about the encounter between the play and the community Mm. and the opening that that encounter created. We knew we didn't want to do a film that's about like bringing a play to West Virginia or like making a piece of theater. Like that's cool, but that's not what we're up to, right? Mm. We don't want to be too self-referential about our own work or make a theater documentary. But there was something in that encounter that we were like, there is a story here. Full, Full disclosure, we're collaborating, we started getting into early conversations with you about what that conversation, what that opening could do, it quickly became clear that because actually we were talking across professional disciplines with Mm -hmm. people from EPA, with people from climate funds, with people from foundations, right? Like all of these Mm -hmm. different disciplines that it actually could be possible to use this opening to do something concrete on the ground. And so the conversation started to become, what if we brought a sustainable energy project or helped to bring a sustainable energy project into the former coal fields of Southern West Virginia. Some of these places where it's not a question of whether we're preserving coal jobs or not anymore because the coal is gone. 
The mines are used up. It's a mm. mono economy. There aren't other jobs there. People want jobs. There's an extraordinarily yeah. skilled, hardworking, incredible workforce there. That to me, Appalachia should be the center of sustainable energy production for mm. the 21st century. Like it's sitting right there. Mm. And the problem that's preventing it from happening is that there's narrative change work that needs to be done. Folks from that place, from those places have been exploited from, by outsiders for so long, right? That there's mistrust of people with power coming in. What are you gonna do to our land? Are, are we gonna be safe, right? All of that, yeah. there's, there's a lot of healing and restorative narrative work that needs to be done in order to make such a thing possible. But in this story, we saw the opening to do a little bit of that work. So we're doing something now, you know, usually in impact work in filmmaking, it's so hard to get a film made, especially right. in a film, especially a documentary that as filmmakers, we're usually just totally absorbed with how do we even just raise the money and do this thing. And then the impact piece comes after. But drawing on our experience with the exonerated, we were like, what if we foregrounded that impact piece? Like, mm. what if while we're still raising money to make the movie, while we're still understanding what the movie is going to become, we started that impact work. And what's happening is that the impact work itself is actually becoming part of the story, mm. which I think can help create some new models potentially in the field. Absolutely. Yeah. Knowing folks in TV and film and other elements of media and entertainment, there's so much desire there for art to make a difference in the world, which of you described already just by being art, it can, but this is another sort of level of intentionality, strategy, collaboration that can maybe just amplify the impact. Let's talk about your journey as a creative person. Um, you mentioned Exonerated was your first play and you've written documentary plays, novels, screenplays, TV shows, and you've got an ebook that people can get on your website, which we'll tell them about in a second, with inspiration ideas for people who might be stuck, who have an idea or story that won't leave them alone. You can, they can get this ebook at your website, but if you don't mind, share an insight or an idea for somebody who's listening who has a story they, they need to tell. Absolutely. I mean, to me, that's the guy. So, so I should say also, I teach and I coach and I train yep. folks as well as doing the work that I do as an artist. And I, I teach a couple of different populations. I, I work, um, at the Juilliard School in the graduate drama division, I teach the graduate actors there a class called Story, where I teach them story structure and how to make their own work. In my one-on-one -on -one coaching practice, I work primarily with professional writers and directors, storytellers, to make their art and get it out into the world. And then I also train and consult with advocacy organizations and nonprofits, comms departments in particular, to teach them how to do story. Because I find in comms departments, a lot of the language and skill set comes from advertising and marketing, which is all extraordinarily valuable. And also there's another body of work that comes from Hollywood right. and the arts about how to do story. And I have a little mission about like bringing that vocabulary <laughs> into comms for good. Thank so, you. so I, I, I coach and I teach in all of these different areas. And one of the things that I tell people about story, because we, I think we tend to think about story as this like sort of magical thing that people are like talented at, right? right? Because we don't have an understanding as a culture widely of the brain science behind it, right? So we understand, for example, that 
musicians are working with a set of underlying mathematical patterns that just exist in the world, chord structures, mm. scales, right? Like a composer is working with that stuff and that's their craft, right? And then they bring their full self to it and it can become art. Right. We understand that a painter is working with compositional geometry or color theory, right? That their craft is working with these pre-existing structures. They bring their heart to it and their soul and it can become art. And the craft is powerful in itself also. Right. Right. We don't have that intuition culturally with storytelling. Storytellers are actually also working with a set of pre-existing structures that can be learned as a craft. It's not some magical thing that like great writers can just do that we like already know how to do because we're talented. It's a it's a concrete set of principles that anybody can learn. And I can be kind of a missionary about that. Mm -hmm. So I don't believe that the prerequisite to telling a great story is some kind of talent or some kind of inherent ability or magical skill or charisma or genius or anything like that. I believe that the prerequisite to learning to tell a great story is the desire and drive to do it. If you have the desire and drive to do it, if you have have a story that won't leave you alone or a world of stories that won't leave you alone. That means that you have what it takes to work hard enough and seek out teachers to learn how to work with the sacred geometry of story, these pre-existing structures, and craft that story into something that can move people. It's for everybody. It's not just for artists. It's not just for special people who go to Juilliard, right? Like, right. We all have access to this. Listeners, to get access to the wisdom, the website is jessicacblank.com. Of course, or simply Google Jessica Blank. I know we could walk out for hours on brain science and storytelling and strategy and impact. So we'll do it again sometime. Thank you so much for joining us today. Excellent. Thanks for having me.